friends often text me about frustrating stuff that happens to them when they're at work. Their boss talks over them, their coworker dismisses all their ideas, their lab mate is taking credit for the experiments himself. How do you deal with that stuff? I rarely have good advice, but it's always nice to have someone to listen and commiserate. Writer Jessica Bennett has her own version of this, a low-key monthly meetup of female friends who call themselves the Feminist Fight Club. They meet about once a month for drinks and snacks in someone's apartment, and they talk about the annoying situations they've dealt with recently, offering each other tips and cheer each other on, and of course, drink a fair amount of wine. That spirit of banding together to commiserate and push for change is the basis of Bennett's brand new book, Feminist Fight Club. Hi, I'm Jessica Bennett. I'm the author of Feminist Fight Club, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace. The book is funny and lighthearted. It's full of drawings and pie charts illustrating everyday douchebags and sexist encounters. But it's also pretty real. A lot of it deals with naming casual sexist behaviors, like people interrupting you, or assuming that the woman in the room could not possibly be the person in charge. Personally, I found it cathartic to read, and now I have something to gift to those friends who text me and find themselves carrying the burden of frustrating office dynamics. The book starts out with Jessica describing her experiences working for the social media platform Tumblr. Tumblr was this kind of cool, hip place to be working. It had really nice offices. People brought their dogs to work. There were unlimited snacks, like more snacks than you could ever imagine that you could just eat all day for free, which was very exciting for um, somebody coming from the journalism world. And it was great for a while, except that I began to realize that you know, most of the people working there were men, and even though I was supposed to be relatively in charge, people would look to the men when I spoke anyways. Can you tell me about a concrete dynamic that you saw in the office that maybe seemed normal at the time, but then later you realized, oh, gender played a role there? A lot of this stuff today is so subtle. So it wasn't necessarily that there were really overt forms of sexism happening, but Certainly, there were a lot of dudes looking at a lot of gift porn in that office, and there were things like after-work beer pong and a lot of trips to different sports events for team bonding, which isn't to say that women don't like sports and didn't want to attend those things, but they were all very gendered in a way. Jessica and another journalist, a man named Chris, got hired at the same time to head up a brand new journalism initiative on Tumblr. In a very modern move, Tumblr asked them both to choose their job titles. They were both co-editors, reporting directly to the CEO, so equals, right? Everything was very egalitarian and a flat structure, very tech world. But then when I arrived on my first day, they told me that Chris, my counterpart, had chosen the title of editor-in-chief. And anyone in the journalism world knows that that is the absolute highest title you can ever hold. So there was really no recovering from that in the sense that we weren't going to be considered equal. I could choose the title of executive editor, but that still came below his title. And he, in fact, was a wonderful guy and boss, but it sort of felt like I'd been sneak attacked with a boss, and that boss happened to be a man. It's not like Chris, Jessica's co-worker turned instant boss, was a bad guy. But sexism, unconscious or not, certainly played a role in the structure of even this cutting-edge, open-minded business. Chris, my counterpart, actually wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago after the book came out because I had approved the language with him. I told him I was going to be writing about my experience there, and he knew that all of this had happened, but 
he didn't, I don't think, realize that he had just inferred that he was going to be the one in charge. He chose that title because, of course, he would choose that title. He assumed that he would be the editor-in-chief. And so he writes in this piece about this and about that sense that, as a white man, he assumed that he would be in charge, and he didn't think twice about it, whereas I assumed the opposite. I didn't know what title I would be, and probably, if given the chance, I wouldn't have chosen that title because I would have assumed that maybe I wouldn't get it from the start. So some of this is really unconscious behavior, and in his case, he's a wonderful human and a feminist, and he really wants to fight for gender equality, but some of these things are so deeply embedded and ingrained in our culture and in our psyches that it's very unconscious. This is the way that a lot of discrimination shows up in the office these days. It's very rare now to hear someone say overtly, women shouldn't be bosses, or women don't deserve to earn as much as a man. When you look at the numbers, the race and gender wage gap persists. And it's rare to see women in upper management, even in a lot of progressive companies. It's subtle sexism, which makes it tricky to recognize and address. Like, for example, think about the gender assumptions coded into a lot of our language. One section of Jessica's book lays out a list of words that are often applied to women, but almost never to men. Like sassy, feisty, dramatic. Emotional, Jessica writes, is how women are perceived when they express anger or displeasure at work, while a man who does the same is simply viewed as passionate. I feel like I've probably faced almost every word in here. You know, aggressive, ambitious, bossy. I certainly was called bossy when I was younger. Um, I was called crazy once by a female editor who'd never actually met me, and that was passed along down to me through a friend. You know, all of these words that either are assumptions, you know, crazy is a very easy way to dismiss a woman, and it's a word that's been used for centuries to do so, or things like bossy, ambitious, aggressive, Words that were they describing men would actually be pretty good behavior, like the behavior required to be bossy or to be ambitious is actually great leadership qualities. And so in men, we don't use those words. We just assume that they're acting like a leader or behaving like a person in power does. But when women are too ambitious, we don't like them because we have all of these deeply rooted stereotypes that tell us women shouldn't be ambitious. They should be nurturing. I have my own complicated relationship with the word intimidating. Men often describe me as intimidating, and immediately I say... What's so scary about me? Are you intimidated by smart women? Which, of course, is probably legitimately intimidating. <laughs> but hey, that's their problem, not mine. I think that more than having a quippy response, which I, I'm not always equipped with, I try to call attention to the double standard of the word. So for me, the easiest thing to say is, would you call me that word if I were a man? And you see this in things like performance reviews where, where women are called things like aggressive and the reviewer can take a step back and ask themselves, would I be describing the, the candidate or the employee that way if she were male? And more often than not, I think the answer is no. In Feminist Fight Club, Jessica also uses language in another way, by listing terms for workplace dynamics that are often hard to talk about. 
part of the tactics to overcome this is calling out the behavior in the first place, being able to recognize when it's happening. And so throughout the book, I've given these titles to different types of behavior, like mantraption, when a man interrupts a woman at work, bro-propriation, when a bro appropriates a female idea. And the idea is not to call out every man for being an interrupter because that's not true, or every guy for stealing ideas, but to put titles and maybe sort of fun, easy-to-roll-off-the-tongue titles on behavior that is statistically has a pattern. Of course, not every guy is a serial interrupter, and of course, not every person who takes credit for ideas is a man. But when you step back and look at a pattern of behavior, like who spends most of the time talking in meetings, there's definitely a gendered dynamic to it. Not every guy is a talker, and some women, like me, are prone to talking a lot. But several studies have shown that as a pattern of behavior, men take up way more time during meetings and in classrooms than women do. One 2012 study showed that men took up 75% of time in an average business meeting, and a 2004 study of Harvard Law classrooms found that men were 50% more likely to volunteer a comment in class. So what Jessica Bennett is trying to do in Feminist Fight Club is have us recognize patterns of behavior that might otherwise not be on people's radars. I was in a meeting recently, and a man and a woman came in, and I instinctively assumed that the woman was junior to the man. And she wasn't. She was the man's boss. And I sort of caught myself in that moment and was like, oh shit, I just did that thing that so many of us do, which is to assume that the man is in power. And so I do a lot of these things. You know, some of them are traps that I fall into myself, like apologizing before I speak or being unable to take a compliment. You know, I'm on book tour now, and so I'm getting a lot of congratulations from different people. And my gut instinct is to say, oh, well, it's not a big deal. Like, it wasn't a big deal. I couldn't have done it without so-and-so. This person deserves the credit. And while there are a lot of people who helped tremendously with this book, I still wrote a fucking book. I should be able to say thank you and take some credit for it. So from those things that I place upon myself to actually jumping to these assumptions about other people, I struggle with a lot of this stuff. And I think that part of the challenge here is each of us, even those of us who are the most well-intentioned and call ourselves feminists, can actually fall into some of these things. I wish that there was some point in my life where I'd have this all figured out and I would always have the perfect way to point out sexist behavior and the perfect quip on the tip of my tongue when a guy restates an idea that I literally just said. But I don't. It's always a process of learning and trying to do better. And a lot of what we can work on is recognizing that the onus for changing discriminatory behavior dynamics usually falls on the people who are being discriminated against. It's often on us to change our behavior, to negotiate better, to speak up for ourselves, to really fight for promotions. But I asked Jessica, what can we do to get the people who are in power to change their behavior? What advice do you give to dudes, to white people, and to other people who are typically in positions of power for checking themselves and changing unequal dynamics? We live under a patriarchal structure that for years has taught us to be ladylike or not ask for money or not be too braggy about our accomplishments when the opposite of those things is required in the modern workplace. So 
there are some things that I think women can change about their behavior, but I think it's important to note that the onus should not be on them. They shouldn't have to do this stuff. But the reality is that we still live in a very male-dominated world, and white male-dominated world. There are also things that men can do to help, or people in positions of power can do to help. I mean, it's all very specific. And so throughout the book, I try to give really concrete small advice for things you can do in the moment on the daily. For example, if you see a woman interrupted in a meeting, you can interrupt the person interrupting her. You can be like, hey, can you let her finish so that she can say her piece? And she doesn't have to look like a nag by being the one to say, I'm not done talking. You know, you can give credit where it's due. So often women's ideas are not correctly attributed to them. So if you see that happen, you can jump in and you can bring the credit back to the person where it originated. You can do things like if you're in a hiring position, for every white man you interview for a job, you need to interview an equally representative number of women and people of color. Like that just needs to happen and there's no excuse for it not to. If you can't find those candidates, you need to look harder. So I think that there are some things that we can do daily as we're facing these struggles and some of the smaller things that occur in our everyday lives, I also think we need to fight for larger structural issues like equal pay and paid parental leave for both men and women and raising the minimum wage. But I guess I found that when I was beginning my career and I wanted all of those things, I felt pretty powerless to do it. So the tools that I try to provide are the kind that you can keep in your back pocket and employ at any moment. But it has to be coming from all sides. This needs to be bottom up and top down and from really every side and every rich way. Men need to be involved. Those in power need to be involved. Companies need to care about these issues. And those of us who are facing this need to have tools to fight back against it. I mean, yes, a lot of times this stuff is really depressing, but I try to find ways to laugh about it because, in some sense, humor is the only thing <laughs> that will make you want to keep fighting. You let me rest. That was Jessica Bennett. Her book is Feminist Fight Club. Covered in dust.